here with the continuing story of, quote, the Meryl Streep of book design. Sorry. That's all right. That's me closing the door to a sun-drenched, smallish office that hopefully won't get too hot. No, it won't get too hot. And the sun will be gone in five minutes. Okay, great. Uh, The Meryl Streep of book design, this volume, which is entitled... Well, it's actually technically called Chip Kid Book 2. Okay. But from the front, it just says that. Chip Book. With introductions by Murakami, Gaiman, and Pamuk. This volume showcases the many ways Chip Kid now well into his 50s, although he doesn't look it, yeah. <laughs> still manages to pay his rent. It's not easy or pretty, but it has to be done. Some of the truly talented authors and artists he has been privileged to work for. That's an interesting way of putting it. Mm, that's heartfelt. And who are represented herein include Woody Allen, Martin Amos, Michael Chabon, Robert Downey Jr., Robert Hughes, the wonderful Robert Hughes, David Remnick, Oliver Sacks, Martin Scorsese, John Updike, and many, many more as a book designer, book jacket designer. How do you like to be classified? I mean, technically, book jacket designer is a little more accurate than book designer because sometimes most of the time I just design the jacket now for my own projects I'll of course design the book as well you didn't design this though well I does I sort of um Mark Melnick Mark this yeah Mark Melnick is my my wonderful partner in crime and in these things with with Rizzoli yeah yeah so that's book two and he also oversaw book one so he does all the heavy lifting in terms of the design Okay. And then I sort of <clears throat> oversee it and edit it a little bit. And it won an award or two. This? Yes. I think it did. Uh, I think I read somewhere that it did. But uh, um, it was on the internet, so... Okay. <laughs> it's fake news. No, that's 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 nice I'll to try hear. and dig that up. Uh, I, I, maybe it was AIGA 50 books or something. Okay, speaking of Neil Gaiman. Yes. You French kissed him on stage, or did he French kiss you on stage? <laughs> well, technically, and I... How did that feel? <laughs> it felt perfectly nice. Um, what had happened was that was at something called the Eisner Awards. Okay. The Eisner Awards are, to use a cliche, but it's sort of true, they are the Oscars of comic books, of the comic book industry. Mm-hmm. And whatever year that was, we had had dinner the night before the ceremony and we were just talking chatting and and he was with this um there's a tv presenter from england ross somebody ross he's not the scottish guy is he the one that uh, does had the the, the uh, talk show no it might be okay. anyway he uh, so he was going to be on stage with him and and i forget why but neil was saying you know he keeps because he's a comedian too and he's and he <clears throat> he said he keeps wanting to kiss me Right, and I, he said for years I've just sort of put him off, and and that was sort of that was sort of it. And then what we didn't realize was okay. So then, 
the following night at the Eisner Awards. I was there representing Chris Ware for that project, Building Stories, you see? Yes, okay. Which was which won, was nominated for like four awards and won every one of them. And the and the the final award of the evening is is the equivalent of best picture, which is you know best thing that came out this year. And Neil was presenting it with this Ross person. I sh- I have to look that up. And so they announced you know the winner is Chris Ware, and up I come to accept. And I just I just looked at Neil, and he looked at me, and. <laughs> And we went for it. But, you know, it, and, you know, everybody went crazy and (laughs) photographed it and all of that. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, your faces do disappear into each other. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. He's a, he's a great guy. Yeah. He's a great, great, great guy. He lives out near Minneapolis, doesn't he? Well, he used to. Okay. He used to. He, um, he sort of jumps around. It seems to me from from this book, uh, Chip Kid Book Two, just from the introduction there, listing all of these uh, these authors that that you've worked for, that that is one of the most important aspects of what you do. Am I right? Working with authors, you mean? Yeah, connecting with intelligent people who have things to say. Yes, I would <coughs> absolutely agree with that. That's I think one of definitely one of the the perks of the job. Yeah. I've been at Alfred A. Knopf now for 33 years. 33 years as of last week. Were you around when Alfred was still alive? No. Alas. Although (laughs) I've heard that that it's probably good that I wasn't. Also with the Blanche, too. Yeah. I mean, they were quite something. You know, it's it it would have been interesting because apparently they either really liked you or they didn't. (laughs) In terms of, uh, of their colleagues. But yeah, I mean... I started in the fall of 1986. He was dead by then. They started in 1915, so yeah. Yes. And he he was gone from the premises, I think, by the late 60s. You know, trivia, or not trivia, uh, in the history of Knopf, to date, as we speak, there have only, and as you say, it started in 1915, there have only been three editors-in-chief. So there was Alfred, and then there was a guy named Bob Gottlieb, Robert yeah, Gottlieb, yeah. and to this day, it's Sonny Mita. Who, you say, without him, you, know, you said something like, you'd be nowhere, or something along <laughs> those lines. Yes, here's the, here's the official statement. Okay. I was hired in the fall of 1986 by um, a woman named Sarah Eisenman, who was the art director at Knopf at the time, and also this gentleman named Robert Scudellari, who was the head of the Random House Art Department. I owe it to them for hiring me. Within a year, Sarah was gone. She had met and married a guy named David Godin, who you... I interviewed. You did? Okay. All right, so there. There you go. His wife, Sarah, hired me. But then she met him and, and had to move to Boston. And then a woman named Carol Devine Carson took her place. I was still just 22. But then Bob Gottlieb left also to be the the head of the New Yorker magazine. And that was a big, big thing for a variety of reasons. And then Sonny became... So all that happened within a year of my starting. Right. So in my opinion, I owe the job 
to Sarah and Bob Scudelary, but I owe my career to Carol and Sonny because they enabled it to happen. How'd they do that? How'd they do that? They let me do my thing. I mean, you know, it's it's it accrued over time. There there was it it was big by bit, book by book, but I think especially Sonny, you know, it was again like I I said it was within the firm that's monumental. If you if, if you've got a at that point what, 80-year-old firm and he's only the third editor-in-chief. Yeah. That's a big deal. And I think he really wanted to to do something new. Well, new and not so new. Uh, the Knopfs were renowned for the beauty of the books that they put out from a very early uh, yes stage. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I studied Dwiggins in college. Yeah, and he coined. He was the person who officially coined the term graphic designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, but but what you just said, you know, the beauty of the book, but beauty is in the eye of the beholder, to use a horrible cliche. And so, you know, what would be beautiful to one editor-in-chief might not so be so beautiful to another editor-in-chief. And I think... His definition of beauty was pretty broad. Yes, and got you know Gottlieb. There was some amazing book covers on on his watch. Definitely, mm-hmm. actually, before pre Knopf, one of the most iconic would be Catch Twenty Two. Mm. Who's responsible for that? Paul Bacon, right. who was a very prolific designer, mm-hmm. um, died six seven years ago. But if you research him. He's worth knowing about. So, uh, the first book that Sonny bought for the house was a novel called Geek Love by Catherine Dunn. I mean, it's an amazing book, but it's it's weird. You know, it's about a family of circus freaks. Did like Todd Browning's 1932 movie Freaks? Well, all right, but uh, it was but set it's set in contemporary time. I mean. Sort of like that, but but yeah, but nasty. <laughs> but the fam the family of freaks is very sweet, actually. But it's oh, okay. all the stuff that sort of happens within that, and and I had the opportunity to do the cover. I mean, again, I'm, I, by that time I'm what twenty three, twenty four. Okay. And for what it is, it's sort of a radical reworking of you know the. It had a bright, bright, fluorescent orange background, which was, you know, now, is that beautiful? Did it sell it, books? Yes. That's it beautiful. did, and it got a lot of attention. It got, it all got a lot of attention. Um, and so it, it's, in its own way, I think it was a subtle or not so subtle gesture. The whole thing, the whole publishing of that book was sort of saying, this is the new Knopf. You know, and they handed is, it to you. This is the, well, they didn't hand it to me, but they, they, I got a lot of good opportunities. So what I'm saying is, you know, look, because I, I was just the assistant. So if you're if the art director, this woman, Carol Devine Carson, she doesn't have to, you know, 
there are some art directors, frankly, who did or do keep a lot of the interesting work for themselves. And they have, frankly, they have every right to do that because, you know, you put up with a lot of guff, you know, but that's also why I didn't want to be the art director, really. Like I didn't managing want, I didn't, personality? I don't want to manage or? a staff. Yeah. I, and, you know, if, if something's going wrong with, with an author or a jacket or this or that, you know, you, you have to deal with it. Now, I, I do deal with it but it's just I didn't I didn't want the hassle. But I'm and I'm talking in five directions here. But when I say I owe my career to to Carol and Sonny, it's because I got these opportunities to work on some really iconic books, and part of the whole reason that I that I took the job at 22 for for almost no money was that book cover designers get credit for their work. We're going to publish All the Pretty Horses by Cormac McCarthy, and I get the as long as I get my design approved, my name goes on it. And so there was... And your, your name goes on millions of copies of that book. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And, if they, and so much the better if they pick it up for the paperback. So yeah. for, the, for the benefit of your audience or what have you, it should be noted that I'm primarily known for and do covers for first edition hardcover books. On occasion, that will get transferred to the paperback, but certainly by no means every time. So it sounds like both of them were very generous. Yes. So in that particular case, that, that book that was the, the freak book, mm -hmm. um, how did you approach that? Was it just some uh, an idea that came to you in a dream or did you talk to the uh did you talk to the author or um I mean, well was... I, I certainly read the, the manuscript and and that's you know that's a question that i always to this day still get do you read it but all right so i i did back in the day when i wielded a pencil and a pen i did a lettering treatment but i that i had also added unfortunately i i got rid of it but I had put this sort of like tribal mask thing under the lettering and again that came to you as a inspiration or well when you make a typeface one of the terms is a family and so this would be like a, a typeface a freaky typeface where it all looks like a family but there's three E's in it and they're variations of each other and yeah, they look freaky together. Yeah, and so basically, I show this sketch to to Sonny, but it had this tribal weird thing here. Yeah, under the lettering, and he he said, "Do you want to try it with just the lettering?" Because they're so strong. Yeah, I, he said, "I think that's all you need." And as soon as he said that, I was like, "Oh my God, he's right." Because you don't want to distract from how cool those letters are. Right. And so it's been, you know, one thing like that after another ever since. But so that, in, that's, in other words, sorry, he's acting like a really good editor, it, it yeah. seems to me. He's sort of making suggestions or asking interesting questions that allow you to go forward. Yeah, he's got a good eye. Okay, so on this one, which I'm... This is Haruki Murakami, Carlos Sakuro Tazaki, and his years of 
pilgrimage. And Basically, that's the design I presented to him, except the title was in white. And he said, you know, I think, I think this is great, but do you want to try the title in black? Because I think it's going to be easier to read. And he was right. Interesting. Yeah. So a, a really valuable eye that's looking at your work. Yeah, and believe me, I've done I've done freelance work for editors who do not have that eye, <laughs> <laughs> and it can be very very frustrating. This book, this title, uh, uh, it's interesting because it exhibits uh, something that uh, you play with an awful lot in your work, and that is these cutouts. In fact, I think the first book that really caught my attention of yours was Glamorama. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Where you took, you basically had all of these faces and you cut out the jacket where the faces were. There mm -hmm. must have been about 30 of them or something like that. These little circular, you do that a lot. I don't do it as much as I'd like. It costs money. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it all it just really struck me, though, is this is something that he really is... Uh... Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was taught when I was studying graphic design at university, Penn State University, you know, die cuts are fine, but you have to have some kind of reason for doing it. Mm -hmm. There has to be some payoff reveal. And so, you know... I will I will do it if there's if there seems to be a good idea and reason for doing so. Yeah, I guess the the reason that you would do it is cuz you've decided to put something interesting on the actual cover. Right. Well, not only interesting but also meaningful, I hope. And there's a you know, there's a, a whole explanation for why I did what I did and why you're looking at what you're looking at, but also I I also have to assume that you know nothing about this book and that whatever I did is just is going to intrigue you enough to want to know more about it. Now, the, the, the thing with this book is, is that it, it came along at a very interesting point in Murakami's career. It's not that old. I'd say that book's, what, five, six years old. What's interesting is that this is a, there's a hand right. on, on, the, uh, on the jacket and, and the fingers are, are cut out. Mm -hmm. And the, the 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 book itself is about the size of a hand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So hands, I guess, have. <laughs> it's about five friends, and four of them decide they're going to excommunicate the other. They're very good friends, and then all of a sudden, the one, the thumb, they basically say to him, "We never want to see you again," and it it's devastating for him. In one time in the book. One of the friends describes their relationship as like we were like five fingers on a hand, and when I saw that sentence, I it, I knew what that's, it was going to be, or at least what I wanted it to be. That's often why I read a book is for sentences that I can I love, I mm -hmm. just admire. It sounds is that how you would read a book? Is you want a sentence to speak to you? Well, I'm if I'm reading a book that I'm going to be designing the cover for, I'm probably going to be reading it in a different way than, say, you would read mm -hmm. it, because I'm looking for clues. Um, and sometimes the clues are literal, like, like that, yeah. and sometimes they're very subtle. Yeah, what makes you so good? <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. Have you don't been asked that before? Don't ask me questions like that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you know, okay. one of the... Uh, this is... I'm going off topic here, but it occurs to me, you're Canadian. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting that you're aware of my work at all, because some of it translates up to Canada, but um, the book world is much different, say, than than the recording industry. And of course, the, the recording industry is, has changed so much. But there used to be, like when I was in school, there was the album cover. Yeah. And the album cover is global, yeah. what we would call global. So yeah. if, if some group puts out an album, it's going to have that cover in every country that it comes out in. Yeah. Not so the book world. The book world is kind of screwed up that way, I yeah. think. Because it employs people in the different countries, that's one thing. And I suppose their justification for it is that uh, we know our readership better that's than correct. you do. That's correct. Which I think is bullshit. Yeah. I actually don't think it's bullshit. I just think there's certain... But, sorry, but between a Canadian and American, I don't know that. Maybe between a Brit and well, a, the, an American. Yeah, that's where, that's where the biggest head-scratcher is for me, is U.S. and Britain. I guess the proof is in the pudding, to, to use another awful cliché. If you're able, if your book cover sells like hotcakes in England, then it just undermines this argument. Well, and but Murakami's a good example because mm. Canada always takes my design for Murakami, but England has their own. There's a, a woman there, I think, named Suzanne Dean, who's been doing his covers forever over there. Maybe he likes it. Maybe, Maybe the authors like to have different jackets in different countries because it, it's fun to collect their own work. <laughs> It'd be that, boring if they're all the same. Well, and that happened to me. I, I published a, a book. Um, you know what the TED conference is? Yeah, I've given one, actually. You have? Okay. Yeah. On what books? On literary tourism. I'm the literary uh, tourist. Uh, but enough about me well no uh they did a book imprint asked me to be the freelance art director and th but then they asked me to do one of the books which i did the concept was let's put a ted talk in a book mm -hmm. so they were compact in size and scope and you know literally designed to take a half an hour to read or whatever anyway yeah. i did one called judge this and what was really fun and interesting was to see all the different... Because TED is global, so they sold this thing to, like, 15 countries. And to see... With your jacket. Well, some with my jacket and some not. Yeah. So it's good to me you'd be able to measure the success of the... Well, problem is there's all sorts of different markets. There's though. all sorts of different markets. Yeah. That was fun to see because I've published books before, but for the most part they don't... It's rare that they see a language other than English. Where do we start with that one? Well, you were m remarking on the die cut thing and the yeah. holes and... Several months ago, I was at, uh, interviewing the, the new uh, editor of the Yale Review. Megan O'Rourke. Megan O'Rourke. And you know my late husband. That's what I was about to say. Okay. Was that uh, while I was talking with her, it came up that they were 
planning on doing a redesign. Yes. And uh, so I said, okay, that's interesting. Who, who, who did the, who did the old one? The old one though had been around for like decades. Let me think. It, it would. Eh, it'd be. I can't remember what year that started, but it, yeah, that would have been about like fifteen years. So, and it's a very sort of a classic. Uh, it's it's typography and it's beautiful, but there's no image. It's about the opposite of what I would say a chip kid piece of work looks like. I couldn't believe that you'd done that. Hmm. And then it came out that uh, your late husband was the, was editor, the editor Yes, for many years. Well, it, for many years, and he was the editor of it for years previous, and then we met. And also he was one of our authors here, okay. which is technically that's how we met. You were designing one of his books? Well, no. It's, it's kind of a humorously complicated story but he was a poet and we published I don't know his second or third book of poetry which for him was the big leagues because he had, he had just been at sort of little university presses before that and anyway a colleague of mine at the time was doing the cover of that and we're talking like what early to mid 1990s and it was again this was before he and I met and there was a lot of back and forth, and he, frankly, was re being really difficult. And so finally, and the book was called The Rest of the Way, and his pen name is J.D. McClatchy. And it's a perfectly fine jacket. It's just sort of boring. And then when he got it, he's like, oh, yeah, this isn't great. They did what I wanted, and it wasn't great. And he just assumed it was me, because he knew my name. He had heard my name. So then we met, I don't know, three or four years after that at a at a book party and sort of put two and two together. He got rid of his nasty feelings about you then. <laughs> you no, he had he actually had apologetic feelings. Because but, he'd but asked was, but, you, he, he'd asked the designer to do this. They delivered. He wasn't happy. Right, and you do, you know, it's all it's all whispered down the alley. It's all through your editor. So his oh, editor okay. at the time was a woman named Elizabeth Sifton who was here. I see. And uh, so that, so he was having conversations with her, and then she would come back to the art director, Carol, my boss. And, and of course, you know, it's poetry. Like, yeah. <laughs> we're going to sell a thousand copies if we're lucky. <laughs> And the best design in the world may add a hundred. <laughs> well, who knows? Yeah. But anyway, so then after we became a couple, he, I would be the go-to person for anything that he was working on. And he, I forget it, whether it was at my urging or what, but th at that point, the, the, the cover design of the Yale Review and, and the interior design was pretty awful. I mean, it was pretty stodgy. Mm -hmm. And so I oversaw redoing that but i they need the and the they need it to be redone again definitely i think they want to put images in as, as well, well and he and we did that um oh, did you okay mm -hmm. and that uh, that would be up to him you know yeah. and he'd run photographs or, and i i did convince him to publish chris ware relatively early on mm. which he otherwise wouldn't have been on his radar at all right um 
but yeah. Uh, All that to say, again, it's just to me anyway an example of uh, the, the range of uh, work yeah. that you do. Yeah, it's, I don't, it's quite extraordinary. I don't like to have like a signature look and, and no. whatever phrase you used, what you looked at that and never thought in a million years that I came anywhere near it, that's a big compliment to me. Every now and then I'll get that. You know, somebody will say, oh, I saw this cover for X and I really liked it. And then I looked and it, I saw your name on it and I was amazed because it just didn't look like anything mm -hmm. you would do. I'm like, yay, thank you. So what? That's your definition of success is to what? Well, it's not about success. It's about, I think it just makes for more interesting design. It, it makes... It makes for a more interesting job for me. So in other words, anything goes? Well, anything goes according to what is needed on any given project. But I, you know, there are designers and illustrators who have very, very recognizable styles. And that's fine. Like who? Like who? Uh, Seymour Quast, Milton Glaser. Yeah, um, definitely. To, yeah. To, to name two, to, uh, you know, iconic, iconic yeah. people. But when I was in college, there was this record label, which you may or may not be aware of, um, called Factory Records out of the UK. They were a label for a bunch of these more what we would now call alternative acts. But their main one was Joy Division, and then the group that Joy Division became, because the lead singer committed suicide, New Order. Okay. Okay. One of them, yeah. So... The art director and designer for the factory label was a guy named Peter Saville. He, uh, he, he's a great sort of um, design hero of mine, and he's still around, and he still works. He's about, let's see, he's about like 10 years older than me. Hmm. Um, and he's in, in London? he's in London. He was in Manchester at the time, because it was all based in Manchester. Like, that's such an interesting body of work, because, you know, Joy Division, New Order... You're talking, I don't know, maybe 20 album covers? And plus they would come out with what we used to call 12-inch singles. Yes. So, and all of those had to have... And that as a body of work is absolutely fascinating because it's, it's the same thing that I'm trying to do with mine. In other words, it all looks different. Each one looks different. So each one is a, is a distinguishable Sensibility. work of art. Sensibility, yeah. <laughs> so you purposefully don't want to replicate anything you've done. No, but uh, but there, you know, now inevitably, yeah, inevitably it happens. And like the New Testament up there, that's a that's a sort of design scheme that I certainly replicate from time to time. As in, you know, bisecting the picture plane in the middle and then having an image at the bottom and type at the top. Like that's that as a design composition is just a variation on all the pretty horses. We're just looking up at your uh, shelf full of face out uh, designs and there's another die cut with... Uh, with Aaron Pamuk, yeah. Yeah, and I'm wondering, I was wondering if there's something deeper like, you know, the cover is welcoming you into the content of the book by actually physically showing you a, a through a window is that or is that uh, yeah that, that that's not inaccurate 
with podcasts mm-hmm. and YouTube and blogs. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a lot more information about books out there, plus, plus of course, word of mouth, which is probably the most powerful seller of books. With all of that, it seems like book jackets may not be as important as they used to be. Would you? Do you want to comment on that? I like a, a point of sale. Of course, they're always going to be of interest and useful, and but there's less point of sale now. I guess not less impulse buying. Maybe not. Well, let's get back to the to the essential question, which is you know, are book jackets still important? Um, I would say yes, perhaps more than ever, for a variety of reasons. But I think... Like what? Because getting people's attention is harder than ever. And this this week, well, it's only Tuesday, but um, to, I guess today is the on-sale date of this, um, this big expose by Ronan Farrow. Oh, yes, yes, about uh, Weinstein. Yeah, yeah. Run, Catch, Kill. And it, it, it has this really interesting jacket. It's the, nothing that I would have thought of. And in itself is kind of a throwback. But that book is all over the media. You need a face for that book. Now, of course, you have his face. But it needs to look like something. And I don't know any author <laughs> to this day who wants to publish a book that doesn't have some kind of visual presence. An identity. Yeah, an identity. They all want that. And that's that's really, really important. Yeah, I guess every time it's referenced in whatever way on the internet, there needs to be some visual. There does need to be some visual. Now, one thing I like to do, just sort of for fun or out of interest, is if I'm, you know, if I'm giving a talk to, you know, hopefully a sizable audience. And we do Q&A at the end. I will ask the audience, all right, who here has bought a book on the internet because of the cover? Right. And oh, pretty much nobody raises their hands. Maybe two or three will. And that, that confirms uh, my belief as well. When an author says, I like this cover, but I'm not sure it will be good to have this on Amazon because it'll be small and blah, 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 blah. And I thought you just said they didn't put up their hands when you asked them if they bought because of a jacket. On the internet. Correct. And I'm getting to the the point, my point, which is I don't design a cover with that so much in mind it's like what's right for your book right and so <laughs> let's let's do that first and then we can figure out how it's going to appear digitally because that because they could be different is that what you're saying it's not that they could be different but like say all right it's you know this yeah this being flat the the murakami handbook yeah yeah that's going to flatten out obviously like what kind of presence is that going to have when it's when it's a digital glyph um but i should also say to the to this day ebooks account for less than 10 percent of our book sales well i've heard uh, varying figures i've i've heard up to 20 percent now mm. but, but uh, you may have the, i mean the better 
I just did a thing where we had to research this, okay. like last week, and it yes. was less than ten. Now mm. all books are different. You know, maybe maybe for self help books, it's much higher. Yeah, because you probably. Well, I don't know. I mean, I I don't listen to books on audio. But you're saying for novels, then that's ten. That's yeah, and okay. also for somebody like Murakami, hands down the majority of sales are in the first edition hardcover. Now, with time, the paperbacks will overtake that. But his audience wants a thing. They'll they'll stand in line overnight, hmm. the, the night before the book comes out, because they want the thing. And I think most of the authors I work with, that's the case. I thought that uh, getting back to uh, Pamuk again, he said that with a good cover, you recognize uh, the book it belongs to just by looking at the image, the color, and the design without needing to look at the title or author. I thought that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he has his own ideas about what he thinks. I would agree with that, except the author part. Yeah, okay. I think, you know, that that's pretty important. Your uh, husband was quite a bit older than you? Two, 20 years older than me. Yeah, so I guess it was... Yeah, I, I guess it was inevitable he was going to die before you. Well, <laughs> how <laughs> philosophical do we want to get? I mean, and also, how intimate do you want to get? Like, well, that's uh, you what know, I was going to say. I, I, please I, don't feel like you have to. I'm just wondering no, how I have, may have affected your your creative output. I mean, it must that must have been difficult. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I mean, look, it's it's no secret I'm into older guys. I have been mm. since I since I was a kid. Yeah. Um but now I am an older guy, which is <laughs> weird. So how do you find an older older guy? Well, and or do I want to, yeah, you know? Yeah. So but, at a certain point they become really Yeah, no. <laughs> wrinkled and, yeah. Well, yeah. and it's it's not even the wrinkles, it's the um I mean, yes, you you know, you sort of mentally prepare for, you know, if you're in a, what we call a May-December relationship, um, you know, you sort of think, okay, this is statistically what's going to happen. But he, the reality was he got cancer and we thought we caught it in time, but we did not catch it in time. And then, then you you or me you become the caregiver and you know it it really that really took its toll that's exhausting isn't it? well it's exhausting and it's very very upsetting and i'm you know it's been a year and a half and i'm still recovering from that yeah. but in terms of the creative output i mean the, the the great thing you know when we were together what 22 years we were essentially both sort of whatever you want to call it, whether you want to call it a workaholic or super productive or whatever. I mean, he was always doing something. I was always doing something. And mm -hmm. it was great because we weren't competing in yeah. any way. Whereas the guy that he was with before me was also a poet. Uh, yeah. And that was, I mean, that went on, dragged on for 12 years. It was a disaster. Because then, then you run into something that I call success deficit disorder. Okay. where you have a, a couple 
that are both trying to do the same thing, but one's really successful at it and the other isn't. Yeah. That that can that can be messy. It's rarely yeah, it's rarely equal, is it? Yeah, but I think our our spheres were so different, and yet they intersected in the book world in Knopf. Yeah, and no, it's always nice to have a partner who's really intelligent and interested in the same things that you are interested in. Well, yes, except you know the whole, and our I think our friends used to get a kick out of this, like. He was, the short description is like, he was high culture and I was low. So, you know, he was literally a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and I'm into comic books and cartoons and et cetera, et cetera. Different kind of cultures. Yeah. But that intersected too. Opposites attract as well. <laughs> uh, yeah. But again, as far as your output, you haven't become dark or you haven't, it hasn't affected your not sensibility, but your productivity. Your outlook on the world. Productivity. Yeah. Outlook on the world. I mean, it has. It has affected. I mean, that's. I mean, it, for, in the last couple of years, I've been so like I've always been grateful for my job, mm. but boy, I've really been grateful for it for a variety of reasons. First of all, my colleagues were so compassionate yeah. when all of this was going on, and that they all knew him. So it was a support group. Yeah, I mean, it was a support group by way of just do your thing, come into the office when you can. Now, I, it wasn't like I had to turn anything down. It all just kind of, you know, I remember being in the hospital reading a Murakami manuscript. So you kept at it. You I kept, kept at it. Yeah, okay. And that helped. But again, you know, I, I just kept, well, all sorts of things I was thinking, but like, you know, like, what if I had some sort of job where I was really expected to show up nine to five, yeah. five days a week, I would be screwed, you know? And, and the, all of these things that you think about, and it's all in the national conversation about healthcare and... So in other words, the company can off, can... Yeah. Came through as a decent, very much as a decent company. Oh, abs oh my God, yes, absolutely. Yeah, as uh, a, they, a yes. caring. Uh, yes, very know. much, very much. I'm very grateful for it. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I I feel like where I have dried up a bit in this respect is um, writing. Yeah, because you're a published novelist. Yeah, and yeah. I've been I've been trying to get back to. I mean, I've been working on a novel now for what, four or five years. Yeah, and it's—I don't know—it's and but it's about—it's going to be about him. It is about him, and mm. so for a while it was therapeutic. Right. And I'm trying to get back into that space again, and I'm not there yet. So, was being around all these authors, uh, what motivated you to write for your for yourself, or have you always had that? That's a good question. Um. I think it's a combination of the two. I've, you know, I, I do consider myself a creative person. Yeah. Whether I'm an artist with a capital A is not for me to say. I don't think I am, but mm -hmm. I'm a creative person. And at a certain point, that included writing. Do you want to prove to yourself you could do do this? Yeah, kind of. But it's also it also was about 
all right, what story do you, and I'm asking this of myself, mm -hmm. what story do you have to tell that no one's told? And I started thinking about my college experience and studying graphic design and how I, I have had these two very influential, but mer, what we would call mercurial teachers. And, you know, we would get these assignments and then you'd come to class and you'd put it up on the wall and then they'd cr critique it. And, it. and it, I started thinking about how to make this into a compelling narrative and, and frankly, a comedy. And so at the, I, it, nothing better than a good laugh when you're uh, reading a novel, really. Yes. That's and one it, of the criteria I have and for it's a great not, novel. And it's not easy. And, you know, I think, I think scary is much easier than funny. Mm -hmm. Just as an aside, yeah. yeah, as an aside, um, you know, it and it became not like a game, but like like an like an exercise. It interested me, and and it was always going to be a novel. It was not going to be a memoir, you know. Once you just say this is fiction, then you can kind of do whatever you want. Yeah. Otherwise, there you know there are writers who get in trouble because it's a memoir, and then. It gets published, and then if it's a success, then somebody steps up and says, wait a minute. That never happened. That never happened, or he's lying, or whatever. Would, would you say that someone who wants to get into graphic, the, 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 and I'm just closing down here, someone who, who has aspirations to be a dust jacket designer, would they benefit from reading this novel? What's the name of the novel? Well, the, there's two novels. The first novel is called The Cheese Monkeys. The second novel is called The Learners. The, and the one grows out of the other. But actually, I mean, both of them very much have to do with graphic design. Yeah. Neither of them have anything to do with book covers. Cheese Monkeys came out the fall of 2001. Okay. So think about that. Yeah, almost 20 years ago. Well, yes, but also yeah, three yeah. weeks after 9-11. He worked on Amos's The Second Plane, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a bit interesting book. I, it's essays, isn't it? It's essays, but, but really about coming down hard on the terrorists yeah. based you know that just the title you mm -hmm. know like this this was in other words it was so premeditated what was it I, like working with Amos or did you work directly with them or not I actually didn't work directly with them but um, way back in the day to use another modern cliche uh, I did a freelance cover for um, London Fields yeah it's one of my favorite novels for the again, you know, the first edition, and back then it was Crown, and I, I I worked with an art director. I didn't work directly with with Amos, and it's it's you know it's a nice cover. It sort of holds up, and he loved it. And then I then I did a couple more for him, and then he then he moved to Kanaf, and I did some for him here too. And I I met him, and hung out a little bit socially with him. He's still in Brooklyn? I know he's, he's musing about going back to London, I think. You know what? I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. Last I knew, he was in Brooklyn, but also, of all things, um, South Florida. Mm -hmm. Bought okay. a house in South Florida. I know he's, he hangs out in Uruguay, but that's his wife, I think. Uh, Isabel Fonseca. Yeah. Finally, then, uh, getting back to your novels uh, and graphic design, uh, what wisdom did you deliver in those novels? And uh, over and above that, what wisdom can you impart to uh, the future uh, book designers uh, in, our, in our audience here? Let's see. 
what wisdom did I impart? I would say the, the novels are, a, they're about a lot of things, but they're about problem solving through graphic design. That's like, if you had to distill it down, that that's the, the thing. And, and exercises in what I would call conceptual thinking, which then leads to your second question, which is, you know, what's the great advice for the next generation of of graphic designers and um, again this sounds very general but there is all this anxiety over AI AI taking over jobs robots replacing humans and I truly believe that if okay you're you're a graphic designer student whatever if you can develop a skill where you can develop an idea that grows out of a problem that you're given and if you can get a job or work or get paid for this skill and whether that's on staff or freelance and this is whether you're a book cover designer or you're a advertising person or you're a I mean graphic design everything has to be graphically designed if if you are perceived as being paid for your ideas then you cannot be replaced with a machine because I don't care what they say AI is not going to be able to create its own ideas so you know that's that's me sort of and and maybe I'm full of shit no you I know mean, that resonates with me because I've always thought that ideas are uh, you know whatever however you want to define God ideas come from there and you're lucky to get them and uh, if you know then how to convert them into reality mm -hmm. yeah yeah i would that's the definition of happiness i would well happiness <laughs> i mean i one of my sound bites but it's true is like frankly i get my ideas from the authors like this idea comes because she wrote the book that she wrote geek love geek, yeah. you know the geek love design came out of geek love the text yeah without without her text you wouldn't have that great idea right obviously right so so no wonder you uh, enjoy uh, respect uh, work for writers yes I mean you know by and large they're a very smart group of people yeah can I be, can attest to that for sure. They can be very eccentric as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, we we like that as long as it's something we can work with. Well, we like what you've just provided us with, which is a, an interesting conversation about what you do. Thank you very much. All right. Well, thank you. I've been speaking with uh, Chip uh, Kidd, who is a world-renowned dust jacket designer and author thanks again and it's wait it's october it's october 15th 2019 thanks again sorry i think it's important to date things